This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground. It's our new membership designed for you to help you attract more clients and hit 10K a month consistently. For more information or to sign up, go to thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 132 as we chat with author, ad contrarian, and chief aggravation officer, Bob Hoffman, about what's wrong and what's right in the advertising today, what it's like to found two successful ad agencies, what copywriters need to know about marketing and copy right now, and what it means to be a true contrarian in an industry where groupthink is rampant. Welcome, Bob. Hey, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Bob, how did you end up as a contrarian copywriter? Uh, I started as a contrarian person. <laughs> and, and then uh, it, it, uh, it led to me being a contrarian copywriter. I, uh, well, I started as a copywriter. I really didn't start as a copywriter. I started as a science teacher, believe oh, wow. it or not. I was a science teacher for a couple of years in middle school. And then I ran into a friend of mine who I was uh, hadn't seen since college. This is about three or four years after college. And I asked him what he was doing. And he said, I, uh, I'm a copywriter. And I said, what's that? And he said, I write ads. And he said, and you would be really good at it. He said that to me. And because we had written some stuff together in college, and he said, you'd be really good at that. And uh, and at the time, I was fed up with that. I was a terrible teacher. It was just <laughs> awful. And I wanted to, I always wanted to do writing, although I wasn't trained in it. Um, so I said, well, how do I how do I do that? First, I, have, I need to say that he said to me, you know, those things the TV commercials you see on TV. I said, yeah. He says, I write those. And it had never occurred to me that civilized people actually sat down and wrote commercials. I thought somehow they just appeared on television magically. And uh, he said, yeah. I said, okay, well, I, yeah, that sounds like something I'd like to do. So he gave me some information on how to, what to do. And I put together a sample portfolio and I took it to see uh, a a headhunter. I was living in New York at the time. And she told me I would never get a job in advertising. And that's when I knew I had to get a job in advertising because I'm a contrarian. So um, I did get a job and uh, I started, I worked in New York for a couple of years and then I moved out to San Francisco and got my first agency job in San Francisco. In New York, I was working in-house uh, at Panasonic in their adver- They had a large advertising department, about 40 people or so. And I got my first agency job in uh, San Francisco. And uh, yeah, that's how I started. So uh, obviously, there are differences from maybe when you got your first job to writers today. But what, what are the things that you did in order to land that first job? What was it that made you stand out so that an agency would be willing to hire you? I begged. I, I pleaded. I bribed. 
No. Um, what I did, how did I get the, well, my first job I got uh, in New York, the in-house job was they had interviewed about, uh, they some oh, 50 people or so. And um, somehow I convinced them that uh, I was good. I really didn't know anything. I had never written copy, but um, I got lucky and they hired me. When I got to San Francisco, I had a pretty good book, which which I had, uh, you know, my my uh, book of work from New York was pretty good. And the first agency I went to in San Francisco, which happened to be the first one in the Yellow Pages, hired me. So I got lucky there. But, um, you know, I think that the, the most important thing for a copywriter to get a job, and, and this will, as we talk today, I think this will become a theme in what I have to say, is to be interesting. If you're going to be a writer, you have to write interesting stuff. I don't care if you're writing copy, if you're writing poetry, if you're writing movie scripts. The key is to be interesting. And if you're not interesting, if you're if you're writing like everyone else, if you are uh, if your point of view is like everyone else, uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna be very successful. That we already have enough people who can um, who can follow the script. You you need to be someone who can write his own script and do it in a way that makes people want to read it. That's to me. That's uh, the essence. Can you talk more about being interesting? It seems like it could be something that you either are interesting or you're not, or is there a way to deconstruct it so that every copywriter could be interesting if they do these certain things? No, I don't think every copywriter can be interesting. I don't think, I don't believe that we're all equally talented. I think there are some people who are more talented than other people and some people who are more interesting than other people. And, uh, I, I don't know if you can teach how to be interesting, but you can teach interesting people how to write mm, in yeah. a more interesting way. And the way to write in a more interesting way is to not worry about being correct all the time. Um, nobody is correct all the time. Nobody bats a thousand in this league. Sometimes you're wrong. But as long as you're wrong and interesting, people will read you. As long as you're wrong and interesting, people will get something from what you're writing. If you're wrong and uninteresting, or even if you're right, I'd rather be wrong and interesting than right and uninteresting. Okay? Does that make any sense? Total sense. Yeah. In fact, I... You can totally see this playing out in politics today. You know, the, the most interesting people seem to be the most wrong on both sides of the issue. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a sad fact of life. But in the communication business, being interesting is critical or no one pays attention. Yeah. So let me uh, follow the train of your career then. So you actually, you know, after, after writing as a copywriter, at some point you also founded your own agency. Tell us about that experience and why you chose to do that. Okay. Well, what happened was I was a, a copywriter at an agency in San Francisco and it was a very small, not very good agency. 
And um, I came in there and brought a different vibe to it. I brought kind of a New York wise guy vibe to what was a very kind of conservative, small California agency. And as a result of that, I got to be creative director of the agency at a fairly young age, and I became a partner in the agency. And ultimately, I became uh, the CEO of the agency. Um, and then we were bought by one of these international bozo, you know, agency groups. And uh, I worked for them for a couple of years. And um, I hated, I hated that. I'm, uh, as you can probably tell, I, I'm a good team player as long as I'm the captain, you know. <laughs> um, so I didn't like working for other people, particularly in like a, a publicly traded company. That that just wasn't my vibe at all. So I worked for them for a couple of years. Then I went out on my own and did um, freelance creative work. I did that for about three years, and that was great. I, it was very lucrative for me, and uh, I did stuff that I liked a lot. And I was on my own, and, and you know, having been CEO of an agency and been responsible for a whole lot of people um, was a real pain in the ass for me. But being on my own, doing it my own way was a lot of fun. I did that for three years or so. And then I just got lonely, you know, working on your own all the time when you're used to the agency environment is uh, it can be lonely. And, you know, I always said agencies are terrible places to work, but great places to hang out. And, and I missed the hanging out part of the agency business. So I got together. Uh, I had my own little creative services company, and I got together with a guy who had a small agency, and we put it together, and we started a new thing called Hoffman Lewis. And uh, it grew very, very nicely. And um, so that's how I started an agency. And uh, I, I, you know, f- f- I, I'm not sure the same opportunities exist now that existed when I did that. I did that in ni- 1991, I think. And um, the agency business has changed the structure of the agency business has changed so much. It's so much more consolidated now. Uh, you know, there are four or five agencies that control 70 or 75% of all the advertising in the U.S. now. It wasn't like that in those days. In those days, there were hundreds of agencies and there were very good regional agencies and very good independent national agencies that um, had substantial accounts. And uh, it's simply not the same industry today that it was then. So, you know, the path that I took is not quite as uh, open these days, I don't think, as uh, it was back then. What are some of those lessons you learned from your time as a CEO of that first agency that you brought into your freelance creative work? Um, What lessons can you share with us? Oh, boy. Okay. The first lesson that I can share, and the one that comes to mind most frequently, I'm not sure it's one that your listeners will be interested in, but one of the things that um, was very daunting to me as CEO of an agency was my responsibility to my staff 
and I always worried at night, am I going to say something to a client that is going to cost us an account that is going to cost 15 people their jobs? And um, I always worried about it. And as a result of that, I had to be very circumspect about what I said. I couldn't really tell clients the truth all the time. I had to be sensitive to the fact that if I lose this account, 15 people are going to lose their jobs. And it's not going to be me. I'm not going to fire myself. I'm going to have to let 15 other people go who have houses and children and cars and spouses and stuff like that. And so it made me very, uh, it didn't make me very circumspect, but it made me more circumspect than I normally would be. Once I got out of the agency environment and was working on my own, I didn't really care if I lost a client or not. It wasn't that important to me, and I was going to be the only one to suffer. So I, I, I became a lot more honest in what I could say. And and I see that now in the agency. You know, I do a lot of speaking. I, I do speaking all over the world. And uh, after, I do a, after I do a talk, um, wherever I've done it, people come up to me in the bar and say, God, I wish I could say what you're saying. You know, there are so many people who are in agencies now who can't really tell the truth. They have to toe the line. That, that, that's a sad state of affairs, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. So, you know, following that line of thought, what are some of the things, and I guess anybody who's followed you, you know, is on your email list or read any of your books, they're going to know some of the themes that you've talked about over the last, you know, decade and a half as you've gotten really honest about it. But what are some of the things about uh, advertising that are just driving you nuts right now? Right now, the biggest issue for me is tracking. And I think it's the biggest issue for me because it doesn't just affect the advertising industry. It affects the world. It affects our democracy. There is so much abuse of our privacy by people collecting data about us, primarily online, without our consent, without our knowledge, uh, selling it to other people who we don't know, using it in ways that are not transparent to us. It's a very dangerous situation, I believe. I, you know, I, I wrote a book about this uh, about a year and a half ago called Bad Men. I wrote it before the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal broke, and the very first thing I wrote about in the book was Cambridge Analytica. And this was six or seven months before the scandal. Um, I'm not patting myself on. Yes, I am patting myself on. Um, but, but the point is that there is so much going on that is dangerous. And we know the dangers of totalitarian governments. We know what happens when totalitarian governments know too much about their citizens, when they know who they're talking to, when they know what they're saying, when they know everywhere they go, and they have secret files on people. And uh, what's happening now is it's not just governments we have to worry about. The marketing industry is now the ones who follow us everywhere, know everyone we're talking to, read our emails, 
read our text messages, have secret files on us that they sell to other people, and we don't know where this leads. There is no precedent for this before in history, where where marketers have had this much information about people. And I don't know where it leads, but I know it doesn't lead anywhere good. And I think we're seeing the first wave of this in the scandals about the 2016 election, about how how people were manipulated. Um, and uh, sadly, here in the States, we're doing nothing about it. Absolutely nothing. In Europe, they're trying. They have the GDPR, and they're trying to protect individuals from the abuse of data. Uh, here, we're doing absolutely nothing, and it's, uh, it's a scandal. So I'm guessing when you talk about this kind of thing, you probably hear two things coming back. First would be people don't really care about their privacy. Uh, you know, they're giving it up willingly. And the second one is probably, uh, you know, this is a good thing for marketers because, you know, they can actually sell more products. Uh, and how do you answer those kinds of criticisms? Very easily. Number one, the privacy rights of individuals are far more important in democratic societies than the convenience of marketers. So the fact that this may help marketers in some way it, it, uh, convinces me to a de- to a zero degree that that's that it's a good thing. Uh, our, our rights are far more important than uh, marketers' convenience, and I think it's starting to turn. I think people are starting to realize how dangerous all this stuff is, and are starting to understand that it is not healthy. Uh, Now, as you say, there are still way too many people who don't get it, don't understand this. And uh, that needs to change. And that's, you know, that's one of the things I hope I'm doing, or at least I'm trying to do. And that is to get at least some people to understand that this is dangerous. And we need to think uh, hard and fast about uh, what's going on. Yeah, it seems like as marketers, it's our responsibility to speak up the way that you have to speak about these issues that aren't getting enough attention um, or maybe don't have enough awareness out there. Do you feel like other marketers, other copywriters especially, should use their voice to speak about these issues? Is that our responsibility? I'm not sure it's our responsibility, but it's something we should be doing. I, you know, I don't, you know, a copywriter's responsibility is to write copy, not to be a politician. Um, but I think, I, I, I think it's a healthy thing for, for us, particularly within the environments in which we work, to bring up these issues. If you work in an agency, it's really important I think, for you to talk to other people in the agency and say, let's take a step back for a second. Is what we're doing here really a good thing? Is this really what we should be doing? Is it really a good thing for us to be spying on every, you you know, we we do online advertising and uh, advertising used to be about imparting information. But today, it's just as much about collecting information. And the public doesn't realize this. And is it, 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 you know, uh, 
inside of agencies, I hope there's a discussion going on about whether this is a good thing for us to be doing or not, and whether it's healthy for our society or not. It's a very important issue. And um, if, if copywriters inside their agencies, copywriters are generally the smartest people in the agency. That's, that's, been, my, that's been my experience. And if copywriters can, can get their peers and the, even their bosses to have a to have a hard look at this, uh, I think it's a good thing. Yes, I think you know we're we're very much in agreement. You know the protection of privacy and and uh, limiting tracking those kinds of things uh, are important. Um, so what you know what are the solutions to that? You know because government doesn't seem to be doing anything. The industry doesn't seem to be you know regulating itself. Certainly, groups like Facebook and Google and Amazon aren't going to because you know it hurts their sales. So what are some of the solutions? The only solution that I see, and I'm not a big advocate of government regulation and all that kind of stuff, but in this case, the advertising and marketing industry has proven to be completely incompetent to regulate this in any way, to, to, to restrain itself in any way. The, the marketing industry will go to any extreme to get an advantage. And um, that is not healthy for for our for our society. So the the only you know the the ideal answer is that we the people uh, turn the tables on on marketers and say um, uh, you need permission, you need my agreement to market to me. And here's what here's what I uh, here's what I expect in order to allow you to market to me. Here's what I want. I you know it should be a a a, a web user's bill of rights where we dictate the terms instead of the marketers dictating the terms. But that's not going to happen. Sadly, I don't see it. I, I, there are very smart people who are advocating for this and are trying to get it to happen. But you know, in the real world, I don't see it happening. And consequently, the the correct answer at this point, at least, I think, is that the government has to do some some kind of regulation to protect our rights. So, flipping the conversation a bit, what are agencies currently doing really well that copywriters like me, who have never worked in an agency, should pay attention to and learn from? What are agencies doing very well? Very little. <laughs> um, yeah, let me try to throw you a bone on this. What are they doing right? Well, I think there is, I think there's kind of a rebound happening. I'm hoping there is toward creativity in the agency business. I think that um, the there is a certain group within the agency world who have realized that our obsession with data only takes us so far and that pretty much everyone is getting the same data. There's very little unique data anymore because everyone is into it. Everyone's collecting it. They're buying it from the same brokers and um, they're collecting it from the same individuals. So the leverage isn't, isn't just with data, that the leverage comes with creativity and that 
what do you do with that data? How do you use it? And that's where creativity comes in. And I think there is at least the stirring of a movement to get the agency industry back focused on creativity rather than just numbers. Because for 10 years, we have devalued creativity to a terrible extent and um, only paid attention to numbers and, uh, and metrics. And uh, that has been unhealthy. I think there is a common agreement among those inside and outside the industry that the level of creativity and advertising has suffered substantially in the past decade or so. And I think that uh, there is a healthy move to get us back into uh, creativity mode. It seems to me, Bob, uh, that part of that problem is that the industry, you know, gets hung up on the wrong metrics. Uh, you know, you've written a lot about that, um, especially when it comes to things like social media, you know, those kinds of things. You know, will you just give us a sense of, I, I don't I don't get the sense that you absolutely despise social media, but that you don't like it because of the promises that are made about it. Is that true? Or do you actually hate all social media? No, I, ha- I happen to be a social media success story. I mean, I, I, I don't discount the value of social media. The reason you're talking to me today is because of social media, because of my blog and my newsletter and, and the things I've done successfully on social media. So I'm not a social media denier. What I am is a social media bullshit barometer. It has overpromised to such a ridiculous extent that people can't even see how off base the promises of social media were. Now, if you go back to 2007, 2009, social media was supposed to replace advertising. Go back and read the literature. You, you, you were not going to have to spend money on advertising anymore. You would go to Facebook. You'd have a Facebook page. People would share what you put on Facebook. They would like it. Their friends would see what they liked, and they would follow suit, and it would all become viral and wonderful. And it's all turned out to be complete bullshit. Facebook is now the largest purveyor of what it was supposed to replace. It's the largest purveyor of traditional paid advertising the world has ever seen. And Facebook was a total bait and switch. And... um, but people, for some reason, still in the back of they, their mind, they think that social media is what Facebook is. It's not. Facebook is traditional paid advertising skating on a social media platform. But it is not social media as we came to believe social media would be. And that's true of all the social media platforms. Look at Twitter. Look at Instagram. What are they? They are a carnival of traditional paid advertising. That's how they make their money. 
Hey, we're just jumping into the show today to tell you a little bit more about the Copywriter Underground. Rob, what do you like best about this membership? So this membership community is full of copywriters that are investing in their businesses and taking what they do seriously. Everything is focused around three ideas, copywriting and getting better at the craft that we all do, marketing and getting in front of the right customers so that you can charge more and earn more, and also mindset so that you can get out of your head and focus on the things that will help you be successful at what we do. There's a private Facebook group for the members of the community, and we also send out a monthly newsletter that's full of advice, again, on those three areas, copywriting, marketing, and mindset, things that you can mark up and you know tear out, put them in your files, save them for whatever, and it's not going to get lost in your email inbox. Kara, what do you like about the Copywriter Underground? So I, I love the monthly hot seat calls where our members have a chance to sit in the hot seat and ask a big question or get ideas or talk through a challenge in their business because we all learn from those, those situations. And then I also feel like the templates we include in the membership are valuable because who wants to reinvent the wheel? And Rob and I end up sharing a lot of the templates and resources we use in our own businesses. So I would definitely want to grab those. So if you are interested in joining a community of copywriters that are investing in their business and in themselves and trying to do more, get more clients, earn more money consistently, go to thecopywriterunderground.com to learn more. Now back to the program. So is it possible to build a brand, you know, with social media or exclusively on social media, or is it just sort of another tool in a marketer, marketer's toolbox? I haven't seen since, what was it, Zappos on Twitter, right? Remember that? The shoe company that was built on uh, Twitter, that was done through social media. You know, Dollar Shave, you know, there, there, there have been brands that were built on social media. The problem was they were all pretty much web native brands. They weren't physical brands in the real world. And web native brands are, I don't know, what percent, maybe 5% of all the brands in the world. But if you go to the supermarket and you walk through there, where there are 40,000 different SKUs, try to find a brand of peanut butter or soap or toothpaste or anything, cheese, that was built by social media. Soda, beer, where are they? Where are the fast food brands that were built by social media? Where are the car brands? Um, They just aren't there. And it's like online advertising and social media, to me, are short-term promotional media. They're, They're activations. They haven't proven yet, to me, to be long term brand building media. And that's my gripe with them. If we really believe that the job of copywriters and the job of advertising is to build successful brands, which I believe I believe it is, I think most of us in this business believe that that's our, that's our number one objective, then we have to take a step back and look, where are the major consumer-facing brands that have been built by online advertising. There are very few. There are, you know, like I said, there are web native brands that have been built by online advertising. But where are the physical brands in the physical world that have been built by online advertising? I can't find them. All right. So say I'm a new copywriter today and I'm interesting enough and I want to build my business. How should I market myself today? What advice would you give me? 
I don't know. You know, uh, <laughs> how should you market What yourself? would you do? What I would do is find one good client. I would break my ass to find one good client who would let me do good work. You know, along the way, you get you have to do stuff that is mediocre because you, there are a lot of mediocre clients who, who want mediocre stuff. But but the, the hardest thing to do and the, the most valuable thing you can have is a great campaign. If you can find a client that would let you do a great campaign, then you have a credential that you can take anywhere with you. You know, one of the hard things in, in being a copywriter is it's easy to please yourself. It's easy to please a client. It's very hard to please both yourself and your client. It's very hard to do work that you're proud of that a client will also see, get, understand, and and get behind because the clients are they're looking for safety they're not looking for what we think of as great new ideas for the most part they want advertising that sounds like advertising you know sounds like something they've seen before if it's something they've never seen before it frightens them what what is this this isn't an ad you know an ad is supposed to abc this is doing XYZ. So trying to please both the client and yourself is a very hard job, but it's one that everyone should strive for. Do something that's that you're proud of and, and that you can show to people and say, look, I did this and be proud, but that you can also convince a client is good for them and actually does do them some good. Yeah, I totally. I saw that in my career when I was in an agency. You know, you always went into a presentation with the ideas that you wanted to do. And then there was always the one that you held back that would make the client happy. Uh, it was kind of the fallback. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> what we used to do, I'll tell you what we used to do. We used to do, uh, we had a very, very specific strategy about this. Good. This if is good. We this, were, is I gonna, this is what I'm going to ask is, you know, how do you sell yes. those ideas? Yeah. Yes. We would always, if we were showing the client three alternatives, right, we would always start with the safest alternative. The very first thing you show the client is something that you know he or she is capable of buying. Okay. So they're comfortable. They're not sitting there nervous. Uh, you know, the, the, if the first thing you show them is something that's not in their comfort zone, all the rest of the meeting they're nervous, right? Because they get nervous. And, what? What the? You know, they're thinking, "What the fuck is this? Are they crazy?" But if you start them off with something you know they can buy, right? Something that's right in the wheelhouse of the brief, then they're comfortable. Okay, I got something. I know they got three things to show me. The first thing, um, I, I could buy that right now. It's right in my wheel. Huh? Then, then you can take them down the path of, but here's more interesting, more exciting advertising. And you don't necessarily say that, but you kind of lead them in that. That, that, that was our strategy and it, and it kind of worked for us most of the time. So I'd love to hear even more about that because so many of the copywriters in our club really struggle with um, client engagement and client management and how to really manage their clients. And you've done so much of that. Do you have any other 
advice or just approaches to really managing the client so the client doesn't manage you? The most important thing that the client has to believe is that you have their best interest at heart, that you're not doing this, whatever you're doing for them, you're not doing this because it's your hobby horse, you want this kind of ad, or because uh, your friends are going to think this is cool. You're doing it because it's good for them. And if you ever lose that confidence that your number one interest is what's best for them, then they're not going to trust you. So you have, and I always, I preached this to the people in my agency and I believed it. And that is, we are here to do what's best for the client. Our job is to help them to do what's best for them, not to do what's best for us. And often what's best for them is what's best for us. They may not see it that way. Uh, they, they may see things that are too risky for their comfort zone that would really be better for them and would be good for and would be good for the agency and would be good for the copywriter. Uh, somehow you have to convince they have if a client trusts you, you can do anything. If a client doesn't trust you, you can't do anything. It's, uh, it's a very simple matter of trust and confidence, and you have to earn the trust by doing work that's successful for the client. If you do work that's successful for the client, they will trust you and believe you. And I, I saw that over and over again in my career. And if you ever screw the client, if you ever do something that is wrong because you thought it was cool, forget it. You're going to sooner or later, you're going to lose that client. Bob, would you mind talking a little bit about ageism and the popularity of youth and chasing <laughs> young consumers in the advertising world? I would be delighted to talk about that. This is, this is I'm sure, a new subject for you. You've never covered <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I hardly ever get on <laughs> this one. The advertising and marketing industries are uh, living in a fantasy land. It's narcissism disguised as strategy, all this, all this youth stuff. Uh, 47% of the population, of the adult population in the United States is over 50. 6% of the population in advertising agencies are over 60, or over 50 rather. So um, you can see right away there is a perception problem. People over 50 in the U.S. are what drives our economy. People over 50 represent over half of all consumer spending. They buy about 60% of all automobiles. They outspend the average consumer in virtually every consumer product category, food, household furnishings, entertainment, personal care, automotive, uh, they account for 55% of all consumer packaged goods sales, and they dominate 94% of, of CPG categories. They outspend other adults online two to one on a per capita basis. They have a net worth about three times that of other generations. They control about 70% 
of the wealth in the United States. If people over 50 in the U.S. were their own country, they would be the, lar- the third largest economy in the world, bigger than the entire economies of Japan, Germany, or India. And in the future, between now and 2030, the population of adults over 50 will grow at about three times the rate of adults under 50. And yet, they are the target for between 5 and 10% of all marketing activity in the U.S., depending on whose numbers you want to believe. And, and they're all pharmaceuticals. And it's all, you're right. It's all pharma. <laughs> Absolutely right. It's, it's completely absurd and ridiculous, but it's marketing by selfie stick. The marketing industry and the advertising industry are marketing to themselves, not to the public. And the obsession with millennials, the obsession with young people, it's reached the point of not just stupidity, but creepiness. There is an article in Ad Age today, 10 influencers under 10. <laughs> what? Check it out. Check Ad Age today. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to link to that in the show notes for sure. That's scary. It is, it is creepy and scary and absurd. But that's the world, that's the marketing world we're living in today. Have we beaten that horse to death? Uh, Maybe this is the wrong question to ask. So what do we do about it? What do we do about that? It's funny because we have all this data, right? We're supposed to be data driven. And we have all this data and the data don't mean shit because we we have preconceived notions. And the only data we pay attention to is the data that supports our preconceived notion. The data that challenges our prejudices, we ignore. Otherwise, how can you possibly explain how the marketing industry ignores people over 50? There's no other explanation for it other than that. This seems like it, it should be an opportunity for you know an enterprising copywriter or an agency where they could say, "Hey, I'm going to focus in on you know older older markets." Is that is that a correct assumption, or would you just be chasing more stupidity because nobody's focused there and and nobody's actually going to buy it? It's unrealistic, and I'll tell you why. Not in theory, but in practice, I was going to do that when I retired from the agency business from my agency. My first thought was to create a new agency focused on the over 50 market. And I went around and I talked to people. I talked to very good advertising people who had actually tried it and failed. I talked to people in the television industry, talked to people in the radio industry. And what I learned was that the facts don't matter. The facts don't matter. The prejudices are so strong that the facts don't matter. They, because think about it, in the television and radio industry, their, their audiences are older than a lot of other media. And TV viewers and radio listeners tend to be older. They said, you know, we go out and we show marketers the facts. We show them how big the opportunity is 
if they would just take advantage of it. And they sit in the meetings and they look at the facts and they nod their heads. Yeah, 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 you're right. This is unbelievable. I never realized that. And then they go and they, they do nothing. They do nothing because if you say we want to target people over 50, people look at you like you've got three heads. You're crazy. What? We got to go after young people. Why? Because everyone else is doing it. So we have to do it too. It's a non-starter. Uh, nobody wants to hear it. And uh, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. I mean, it's just, it's just an example of how delusional we are, that we think we're customer focused and we think we're data centric and we think all this stuff and we're not. We're just as subject to our own prejudices as everyone else is. And, you know, we think of ourselves as, as realists, as uh, something special. We're not. Wow. Okay. I'm not. I'm, we're not special. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh man, I, I take man, it back. Kira, you're killing me. You are um, There's no doubt. So, where where do you spend most of your time today? What are you focused on? Writing. I have a few places in my house where I do writing. I move from place to place because I get bored. So um, I go from. Uh, I have a little library area. I do some writing there. Then I have a little. TV room, I do some writing there. Then I lie on the sofa and do some writing there. And I have a kind of an office in San Francisco. It's not really an office. It's more of a bar. But, um, <laughs> sounds like my type of office. Call it an office because it sounds better. I, I used to go there a lot. I used to go there two or three times a week to do my writing. But now I do a lot of it at home because I'm too lazy to commute into San Francisco. The commute has become so unpleasant. So I spend my time writing and I spend my time reading. And that's pretty much what I do now. I also try to have fun. I do some swimming. I play some golf. I uh, do a lot of traveling. But as far as work goes, I'm focused on writing now. You might have just answered this question, but you know, we started the interview with the idea that we have to be interesting in order to you know stand out and get noticed. And you've you've curated this voice for yourself. I'm sure it's it's a very natural thing for you to be the ad contrarian. Tell us a little bit about how you make sure that what you say in every email or blog post or book that you write stays interesting and that people will pay attention to it. Well, the funny thing is that you just said it's natural to me. And in a way it is, and in a way it isn't. I started writing my blog, and it really took me two years to find my voice. It was strange. You know, I, I knew what... The, the Ed Contrarian is kind of a character I've invented, right? It, it, it is me. It is what I think. But it's also, in a way, a character. And um, the brand voice of the Ed Contrarian really took a couple of years for me to develop. And, I, and, you know, I wrote the blog every day for two years before I actually wrote a blog piece. And I said, to, and I can remember when I did, I was, I was in Hawaii on vacation and I was sitting there and I wrote a piece. I said, okay, this is what I want to be. This is what I want the Ad Contrarian blog to be, and this is the character, uh, and this is the voice of the character. And the way I have kept it true to the brand, if you will, is by not writing quite as much as I used to. I used to feel obligated to post something on the blog every day. 
And now I don't anymore. I only write a, a post for the blog when I feel something, when it's something that, uh, you know, I, I'm not forcing myself to write and consequently going off brand by writing about things that I'm not really passionate or interested in. And so now my, my blog writing has become actually secondary, actually tertiary. My first point of access is my books. Those are the things I'm mostly focused on, is writing the books. Second is my newsletter, which I publish every Sunday morning. And then third is the blog. And the blog, I, I only post to when I have something really, something that I think is interesting to post, rather than posting for the, for the sake of posting. And that's, you know, I think, that's how I try to keep it more interesting. What is a book that you've read recently or maybe an old favorite that you'd recommend to us? Uh, Richard Schotten, S-H-O-T-T-O-N. And it's called The Choice Factory. And uh, Richard is a strategy guy. And he is uh, kind of a behavioral scientist. And he applies behavioral economic principles to advertising. Um, anything by Dave Trott, T-R-O-T-T, is, is great for copywriters to, to read because Dave is a truly creative individual and writes very interesting stuff. A book by Ian Pritchard called How It All Went Wrong is interesting. What am I missing? Oh, yeah. There's a book that I participated. I was a partial author called Eat Your Greens. And what they did was they took 35 really smart advertising and marketing people and one dumb blogger bozo and asked them to write essays about um, about the marketing industry and and uh, and so th this book has a lot of uh, very good uh, smart people that um, that you can learn from I think so those are the ones that come immediately to mind uh, that'll, that'll keep uh, us busy yeah, sure. thank you yeah and of course there are my books let's not forget so uh, my most recent book is called laughing at advertising and it's a very silly book, and I hope it's a very funny book. And when I checked Amazon this morning, it was the number one selling advertising book at Amazon. That's awesome. So that, that was very nice. And then my next most recent book, which is completely opposite from laughing at advertising, it's called Bad Men, How Advertising Went from a Minor Annoyance to a Major Menace. And that I wrote about, I don't know, 18 months or so ago, a year and a half, a little more maybe. And that is about the dangers of tracking and surveillance and ad tech. And that one is still doing well. That's still in the top 10 at Amazon. So um, so all, all you copywriters out there, buy the books. God damn it. Yeah, before we started recording, I told you that I have a copy of your very first book. And I think that the thing about all of your books and most of your writing is that as you read, you know, as copywriters anyway, and you know, being exposed to the ad agency world, we tend to just kind of nod our heads along because so much of what you say isn't what's being said, but it just feels 
feels right, feels different. It's it's really interesting reading. So um, even if we disagree with you, you know, it's it's fun to uh, to read what you've had to say. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate that. I was I was on another podcast. Uh, there are other podcasts. What? Anyway, I was on another. Po- yes, it's true. It's true. Um, I was on another podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the guy said, you know, I was reading your book, and I was laughing out loud because so much of it's true. But I was also cringing because I saw myself in some of those, you know, I say some of those things that you make fun of. So uh, so that, that made me feel good that there's actually, I'm not just writing silly stuff, that there's some learning yeah. going on maybe. So what are you working on today, or what's the next thing for you? The next thing is another book that um, I am planning to release within, I don't know, I hope five or six months. I have, uh, I have it all outlined, and now I need to do the easy part, the writing. <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, now I have to do the writing. The, out, the outline is done. So, uh, yeah, I hope that that will be a good book. I'm, I'm trying to write a book that is a little less focused on advertising and marketing audience and more focused on a general business audience because I think there is a need for that. You know, the thing about writing books is you don't make any money. It's terrible. There's, you know, unless you're, you know, Michelle Obama and you write New York Times number one bestseller, you're really not going to make much money in, in writing, particularly business books. But I do it because, A, it's fun for me, and B, I feel a compulsion to um, to shoot my mouth off. It's fun. I like <laughs> All right. So last question before we jump. We like to ask some of the guests, what do you think the future of copywriting looks like? I have absolutely no idea. I know nothing about the future. I never speak about the future. I don't know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. Um, I think people who pontificate about the future are all full of shit. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think they know a thing. But the future is a great place to be because no one can fact check the future and say anything you want about the future. People nod their hey, yeah, that's interesting. And then when it doesn't happen, so what? Nobody cares. They all forgot. I don't know. You know, if I were to guess what the future of copywriting is going to be, I would say more of the same, only worse. <laughs> we'll have the same issues. We'll have even more uptight clients and more data-driven baloney to deal with. And it's going to take a healthy amount of forbearance to be a copywriter and to try to do good work in the face of so many obstacles that are often thrown at us and make it so hard for us to write the things that we really want to be writing. It sounds to me like the future is uh, the place where an ad contrarian is going to find plenty of material for uh, more work. That, that's the great thing about writing about advertising is there's a never-ending supply of stupidity to comment on. You, you, you can't you you can't run out of material. There's so much nonsense that it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to be writing about. All right, so Bob, um, where can our listeners find you if they want to order your books or just get on your mail list? Where can they go? Yes. The best place to go is to my website, which is called Bob Hoffman's website, okay, dot com. And you go there, or you can go to uh, typeagroup, 
Com, which is my the name of my company, the official name of my company, and I'll take you to the same place. And there you will find links to my books and to my weekly newsletter and to my uh, blog. And uh, you can reach me through there if you want to send an email and uh, like that. Awesome, Bob. Thank you so much. Uh, lots to think about and maybe even a few things that some of us can work to change uh, if, uh, if things work out in the future. Well, thank you for having me on. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.